So I want to open with a question. What does, what does one do? How does one respond when one feels abandoned or betrayed by God? What do we do when the one emotion that seems to dominate us in, re, in regards to our relationship with God is anger, maybe even hostility or, or rage? Um, what does faith look like in those sorts of situations? Uh, so this morning, we're going to be going on a journey with a man named Job. Raise your hands if you've heard of Job. All right, good, so we're familiar with him. And so this morning, we're going to look at Job because I think in Job, we see someone who offers an example or a pathway for us when those seasons of life hit where we might say, I'm angry with God and I don't know what to do. Um, so now to, to kind of understand how that comes to pass or, or, or us to kind of see what's going on in Job, we're going to need to start at the end of the book. Um, so if you're familiar with the book, at the very end, God shows up and he actually rebukes Job and Job's friends. But what's interesting is when he speaks to, to, to the friends, he says this. He says, you, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, if you've read the book, at this point, you're probably a little bit confused by this statement because you find not only has God rebuked Job, but in the book itself, Job says some things about God that even, I would say, border on what might be called blasphemy. So, for example, in one of the, one of the probably harshest things that Job says um, in the book, he declares this. It is all one, therefore I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of the judges. If it is not he, who then is it? So don't miss this. Job has just accused God of being unjust, of blinding the eyes of judges and, 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 and causing wickedness to, to grow and manifest on the earth. And he even says that he mocks the calamity of the innocent. This is Job. And so if you, if you're, if you read this, and you, you kind of get to the end, and, and then you see God saying to the friends, you haven't spoke rightly of me as my servant Job has, it causes a little question mark to kind of ping off, which then forces you to kind of go back and reread the book in light of the ending to try to make sense of it. And so that's why we're starting at the end, so that together we can kind of do a quick walk through the book, and we can see hopefully what's happening here. Because the tension that this creates is where I think the wisdom that Job has to offer us comes into play. And, <coughs> excuse me, and what we're going to find is more than just good theology, but what faith looks like in the midst of trials and suffering and hardship, where the one dominating emotion and feeling that we might have with respect to our relationship with God is anger and hostility. And we're going to see in Job what it looks like to wrestle with God and what faith looks like. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would be present here this morning, that you would speak through me, that your word would be made clear. Father, I pray that we would see in Job an example who, who helps us to understand, or rather to, to, to walk, a way to walk in wisdom through times of life where we are frustrated and confused and angry with you. Lord, pray against the enemy, his works and effects. Pray against our own sinful proclivities. And Lord, I ask that you would enliven our hearts so that we might hear your word. And by the power of your spirit, you would re restore us to the fullness of life in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so to get, get things moving, we've got some ground to cover. Uh, so the prologue, introduction, right, of the book of Job. Starts off introducing us to Job. We're told that Job, is a, he's, a, he's a righteous guy. He's a stand-up guy. He's respected by everybody. He has a big family. Um, all the community members uh, look up to him. He's also been successful and has, has, a, has wealth, has acquired wealth. 
And so after we're introduced to Job, who, whom God himself even says is, is righteous and, and, and upright, <clears throat> the scene shifts, and we're kind of given a, a, a picture into like this heavenly court. And it says, the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord, and among them is Satan. Heard of that guy? Not a good guy. Um, here that term is used in more of a title, so he's uh, the Satan, and that word in Hebrew simply means accuser. Um, adversary, right? So the adversary presents himself. God's like, hey, what are you doing here? He's like, bah, you know, been doing this, that, and the other. And then God is the one who highlights Job. He's like, have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. And then Satan says to God, hey, listen, the only reason Job serves you is because of all that you've done for him. Look all you've given him. But let me have a hand at him, and Job will curse you to your face. So God gives him permission. And after Satan has been given permission to take all that belongs to Job, his family, his wealth, any earthly thing that would have been of value to Job, it's taken, this is what happens. Job responds. And he says, And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge charge God with wrong. And so tragedy hits, and we see Job initially responding in faith. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want to highlight this because Job is referencing God using the covenantal name Yahweh, right? Now, in this book, aside from the narrator, Job is the only person who uses this particular name in reference to God. And that's important. We're going to come back to that um, a couple times throughout. So anyway, this happens. Satan has another conversation with with, uh, God. And, 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 and he says, hey, listen, the only reason Job is still being faithful is because you haven't let me take his health. And so then God gives him permission. Okay, afflict his health. And so he's stricken with these boils and these sores. And then he responds. Um, rather, his wife says to him in verse 9, he says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Clearly, she has the gift of encouragement. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So he's had everything of earthly value, including his children, taken from him. Now he's losing his health, and he still responds in faith. After some period of time, his friends arrive, right? Three friends, they show up, and it says that when they arrived there, they didn't even recognize him. His suffering is so great, they don't even know how to respond. And so they end up sitting with Job in silence for seven days, a full week, just sitting there, mourning with Job in silence. Now what's interesting is after this period of time, Job uh, begins to speak and give, gives voice to lament. And, and what I think is intriguing about this is how, how Job initially responds with what? Faith. You see this kind of resolute assurance that God is good, blessed be the name of the Lord. But now he's been sitting for seven days. He's been thinking. He's been processing. He's pondering, right? He's got some questions. His emotions are starting to boil up, and he's a little bit frustrated and angry at the things that have happened to him. Can you relate to this? You know, bottom falls out. You initially respond with confidence. I got this. God's good. He's got me. Fast forward a few days, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? We teeter-totter, right, back and forth. 
And you actually see this in Job. If you read through the book, you'll see him on the one hand saying things like, God, you're unjust, and then God is just. It's like, how do you make sense of that? Well, he's in grief. And so his emotions are waning, and right? And you see him teeter-tottering back and forth. And so here he, he speaks from a place of deep anguish and despair. And the first thing he does is he laments the day on which he was born. And he says, let the day perish on which I was born in the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. And not only does he pronounce uh, wish that he was never born, he pronounces judgment upon the creation itself, wishing, wishing that all that had, had been created was unmade. And we see this, the NIV captures it well. It says, may those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse the Leviathan, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and <clears throat> not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. This invocation of Leviathan, Leviathan was a mythical creature who, was sim who symbolized chaos and destruction. And so for, for Job to kind of call upon Leviathan or to, to ask for people to call upon, Le uh, call upon Leviathan is him basically saying that he wishes all that was made was unmade. And ultimately, Job wishes for death, um, saying that that would be better than enduring the terrors God that has brought upon him. You see this in kind of the close of this initial complaint. He says, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Two important things to know about Job's complaint. First, regardless of whether or not we want to say what he's saying here is true or untrue, I think we need to acknowledge that there's a certain rawness and honesty to what Job is saying. And we're given, a, I think, an incredible picture. If you read that whole chapter, you're given a, an incredible picture of what despair does to the human heart and how it can take us to places where we, where we lament not only our life but life itself, and we just want to check out. And then secondly, we also need to, to see that Job understands that what is happening to him has come to him through the hand of God. And you see this, for example, in that last kind of complaint. He says, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Job never questioned and never questions throughout his entire, this entire letter, or, or rather discourse, that God is sovereign. And we're going to see, increasingly, that's one of the reasons Job is so frustrated and angry. Because he knows who God is, and he can't make sense of what's happening in his life in light of who he knows God to be. So then Job's friends show up. And uh, this is going to be a real condensed presentation. We don't have time to go through all of it. Um, but basically, there's like a back-and-forth discourse between the friends and Job that runs for a number of chapters. And we're only going to look at three snippets from the friends. Because in general, the three friends all basically say the same thing. Um, and it's variations of Job, uh, clearly you're getting what you deserve because God is just. And because God is just, you must have done something wrong, otherwise these things that are happening to you wouldn't be happening to you. So we're going to start with Eliphaz. He's the first to respond. He's the most tactful of the friends. And uh, he says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? What's he doing? Right? God doesn't judge the innocent. So clearly, what's the implication? Job, you must have done something wrong. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. 
But the breath of, by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Right? So he's basically saying God doesn't punish the innocent. Job, clearly you're not innocent because you're being punished. And he basically says as much. He kind of hints at this subtly, subtly in 5.8. He says, as for me, Job, if I was you, I would seek God and commit, and to God I would commit my cause. So the next friend, uh, and again, this is in an order that responds is Bildad. He's a little bit less tactful because he's, he's angry, actually, at Job, because Job responds to the first friend, and he brings this. He says, how long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. You're blowing smoke, Job. Shut up. Stop talking. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? <laughs> Listen to what he says here. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Job, the reason your kids are dead, it's because they deserved it. They were sinners who got what they deserved. If you will seek God and plead, plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Last friend is Zophar, um, and he offers uh, among the friends the strongest of the rebukes. And uh, so he starts with this. He says, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you? What's he saying again? You're babbling, Job. You're blowing smoke. You should be ashamed of yourself for saying the things that you're saying. For you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Job, you should be content and happy because you're getting more than you deserve. And even the judgment you've incurred by God is less than you deserve. Now at this point, between his wife and his friends, we're probably feeling a little sorry for Job, right? He's not having a good day and his friends aren't helping. But here's the thing. Nothing that the friends say is actually wrong theologically. You have to let that sit in for a minute. It may be coarse. It may be tactless. It may be mean. But nothing that the friends say throughout the discourse is actually theologically wrong. It is true. It is true that we get less from God than we deserve if what we deserve because of sin is the full unmerited or full rather unmitigated wrath of God. That's true. It is true that God punishes the wicked and stands opposed to those who pursue injustice and, and upholds the righteous. All those things are true. Now the one thing the friends got wrong is that they, they thought Job was being afflicted for some sin that he committed. You know, but as readers we know that's not the case because we get the prologue. They don't know what's happening. But nevertheless, nothing that they say about God is necessarily wrong. And this is why the statement that, that Job speaks rightly about God is such a kind of twist at the end. We have to kind of go back and kind of figure out what's happening. So now we're going to look at a couple of Job's responses that, that, that give us some insight. And again, there's way more than we can get into, but there's two that are, that are important that kind of crack open the, the door, so to speak, so we can gain some light and insight into what's happening here with Job. Um, and so the first is, is we're going to look at is, is a response to, to Baldad, or Baldad, I don't really know how to, the bald dad, maybe? I don't know. Um, it, it deal, and it deals with the question of, of, does Job blaspheme God? And that's that text we looked at before, 
where he accuses God of injustice and, and laughing at the calamity of the innocent. But before he gets to that, he, he begins by confessing that he knows that God is just. He, he's like, I know God is just. And he raises some important questions leading into this section. And, and he's asking, how can a man, even a righteous man, a just man, stand before God and argue his case before God? And, and, and Job is communicating, right, because he knows who God is and he knows that he's a creature, that, that he is at the mercy of God as his creator. He understands these things. And that, that's at the root of why he's so frustrated. And so he gives voice to this because he knows he's at God's mercy. So listen to what he says. It's in uh, chapter 9. He says, how then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I wouldn't believe that he was listening to me. Why? Because he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. And I love this. If it's a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty, right? Like, God, if you want an arm wrestling match, you win, right? If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Do you see the, like, he has good theology, he knows who God is. And then he says this. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. So Job knows that he's a creature standing before his creator, who he believes to be just. All these things have happened to his life. He can't make sense of it. He's frustrated, but he knows who God is, and he knows that he's just a creature, and he finds himself in like this press, right? This pressure. Because he wants an answer. Help me understand, God. Why are you doing this to me? Job knows who God is, and that's why he's so upset and he's so confused. And now we get to that, that section that we looked at the first time, right? And verse 21 is key. And I think how, how you read verse 21 of chapter 9 is important. So depending on your English translations, there's, there's different ways it can be, uh, this, the Hebrew can be rendered uh, because of the, the wording in it. And so the ESV is, I am blameless, I regard not myself, I loathe my life. And that word loathe is, is reject, like I reject my life. The NIV says, although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. And then the NRSV says, I am blameless. I do not know myself. I loathe my life. Of the three, the NRSV is actually a little more wooden, if you, if you will. And I think it's actually a, a better way of rendering it. So now we're going to read that and then the rest of the section and kind of talk about this, this question of, is Job uh, blaspheming God? So 9, 21 through 24, he says, I am blameless. I do not know myself. I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore, I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Now, this is definitely one of those places where you might think that Job um, is accusing God of being unjust or accusing God of injustice. But here's my question. What if it's less an accusation and more an emotionally raw and honest expression of the feelings and the thoughts that Job is having in the midst of what he's going through? Does that make sense? And so verse 21, if you were to think of it this way, if you were to kind of add some words, he's like, I haven't done anything to deserve this. I don't even know who I am anymore. I reject my life. Like there's this desperation that, that's being given, given voice, right? That's being, I know I'm innocent, 
I don't even know who I am. I hate my life. And then out of frustration, because of all the things he's been thinking of trying to make sense of who he knows God to be in his circumstances and situations, he says, it is all one, therefore I say. And then we get into this section where it looks like God is accusing God, or Job is accusing God of injustice. You see, Job's entire life has just been upended. He's in the midst of profound pain and grief and suffering, and he's utterly lost and confused. And if you've ever been there, you know that you're prone to say things you might not actually believe, but that you're thinking and you're feeling, right? And so in a commentary on, on certain sections, Eric Ortland says this, Job's reason for speaking about God this way are understandable, even if frightening. For no sin Job can think of, God crushes Job in the storm and multiplies his wounds. Job cannot think of an explanation for why God would treat him this way, and so thinks he has no alternative but to draw some terrifying new conclusions about God. Interestingly, when C.S. Lewis lost his wife and was processing through the grief, he reached a similar kind of conclusion. But he said it this way, The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like, if you yourself no longer. So now notice, Lewis is saying the same thing. He's, he's, he's saying in the midst of suffering and grief and hardship, we're trying to make sense of God and, and our life with God and that relationship. We, we tend to begin to like question. We may not mean what we're saying, but sometimes we'll just give voice to these things. And so again, we're seeing Job... Uh, offering a deep and honest expression of anguish and confusion. But I think I want to be careful of saying that Job is blaspheming here, and I think there's merit to this because at the end, God says, Job, you spoke rightly of me. It's the friends who spoke wrongly. We've still got to kind of unpack that, and we're going to get to that. But there's one more response uh, that Job makes, and it's a little bit uh, further on. It's in chapter 12. And, and, and what's interesting is, is Job, leading up to this verse, he, he begins by kind of noting all of the injustice in the world. He's just pointing out all the things that are happening. And he says, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing in the breath of all mankind. Now there's that, that word, that capital L-O-R-D, Lord, right? He's using the covenantal name of God again. He's using the word, the name Yahweh. And, and so when he does this, He's, he's, he's conveying a certain sense of intimacy and trust, even in, in, in invoking that name. So anytime you're reading the English Bible, you see, Lord, that's what sits behind it, is the covenantal name that God has given to his people. But Job is he's doing, he's kind of responding to one of, one of his friends, and he's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean to tell me the wicked don't prosper? Look around. Right? You ever been that way? You ever been in a hard time trying to make sense of things, you're like, why did it, or have you ever had a conversation with somebody, and, um, and they're like, no, things always work out, it's like, open your eyes and look around, that really doesn't seem to be the case, does it, that's what Job's doing, in frustration, he's like, are you out of your mind, but then he says, and, it, and this is from the hand of the Lord, because everything is in his hands, so again, Job has great theology, God is sovereign, God is ruling over the creation, he doesn't question that. He's just questioning whether or not God's doing a good job. That's part of his confusion. That's part of why he's so frustrated. But a little bit later, Job gives voice to one of, I think, the most profound expressions of faith in the Bible. Because for all his questions, and, and this is one that repeatedly comes up, 
that, that Job highlights numerous places that the, whisk, the wicked seem to prosper and the innocent seem to suffer. He says, just look around, you see it happening. But then he, st- he says this. He says, let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. So catch what he's saying there. Let me speak. I'm going to say what I got to say and let, let whatever happens to me, happen to me. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? He's saying, why am I willing to risk my life? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Notice the mixture of frustration, confusion, um, honesty, vexation, and faith. He's clearly angry with God, right? And he says, I'm going to speak my mind, come on me what may. Why am I going to risk my life? Because even if he kills me, my hope is in him. Do you see the profound beauty of this? Job will not be dishonest. He refuses to play games. He's not going to lie. He's not going to put on a facade and try to pretend that he's not where he's at. He's going to give voice and full complaint to all the things that he's feeling. He's going to argue his ways before God because he refuses to pretend. And, And basically in all this, what we're seeing is Job basically throwing himself at God. Job is not rejecting God. He's yelling at God to come and explain himself. So, these verses kind of unlock. We're going we're to come back to this here in a little bit. Uh, how we can understand Job and how Job offers for us a pathway. Um, there's a lot more that happens. We're not going to be able to get to it. But basically, Job has an ongoing dialogue with his three friends. And it ultimately terminates and ends with an inconclusive kind of thing. And then there's a guy named Elihu that shows up. And the reason we need to hit Elihu is because of the friends and Job and Elihu, Elihu is the only one that God doesn't rebuke. Now, where Elihu is a little bit kind of difficult is, like, you read through the commentaries, and even the commentators are like, I don't really know what to do with Elihu. So I'm here saying uh, they're smarter than me, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, but I think they're wrong. Yeah. I think we have to pay attention, because obviously Elihu isn't rebuked, and he shows up, and uh, he doesn't attribute what has fallen to Job as being a result of uh, Job's sin. He kind of adopts a perspective that's more akin to us as the reader. Steps back from a, a little bit, and he's kind of looking at things from a different perspective. And, and he, he says this. He says way more than this, but this is the key one. He says, the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. So what's he saying? That those who don't know God, the godless in heart, like they grow bitter in heart. And then they give themselves over to the pleasures of this life. Or they go pursue false gods because they're worshiping a false god if they're serving, like having sex with a cult prostitute. But the image he's painting here is like the godless in heart in the midst of suffering turn to fleshly diversions and practices or things like that to, to, to find relief and pleasure. And their life ends among the cult prostitutes. But then verse 15 he says, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction, and opens their ear by adversity. It's a weird thing to say. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. 
And so what, what Elihu's getting at here is that there's something more happening here. And, he's, he, and then he turns, he shifts, and he addresses Job. He says, he also allured you, speaking to Job, out of distress. Now, that's interesting, because Job has been claiming he's blameless and innocent. And Elihu is saying, you are in distress, Job, and you know it. And that's affirmed because God, we're going to see, shows up and rebukes Job. But he says here, he was alluring you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. We're not used to thinking of this, but he's like, he was trying to bring you into a broad land and feed you choice foods. Right? That's a good thing. That's a desirable thing. And then he says, but you, you, Job, are full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice sees you. Job, God's trying to do something with you here. He's trying to bring you out into a broad place, lead you out of a place of distress. But you're focused on all the things you think the wicked deserve. You keep pointing out, why are the wicked prospering? Why am I suffering? God's trying to do something with you, Job, and you keep critiquing how God's doing his job, blaming God for failing to be God because the wicked are prospering. You're full of judgment and justice on the wicked, Job. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. Who's wrath? Job's wrath. He's angry. Who's he angry at? God. Why is he angry at God? Because look what just happened to his life. But he warns him. Beware lest your wrath leads you into scoffing. At who? At God. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Such a weird statement but it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And I think Elihu's trying to get Job to see that there's a bigger thing at play here, and that what you're looking at and seeing out among the world as God's inaction is really a display of God's mercy towards the wicked, whom you're numbered among as well, Job. And you're so focused on critiquing how God is doing his job, you're missing what God is seeking to do through you to lead you out of distress. You're full of judgment and justice upon the wicked. And beware, lest your wrath entice you to scoff. He's saying to Job, don't be like the godless in heart. Don't allow bitterness to set in and turn to the things of this world to medicate and distract you when God is seeking to draw you into a broad place. God wants to do something here with you, Job. And then he turns, right? And Elihu offers this statement that God's a great teacher, and then he extols Job to praise the wondrous works of God. And then all of the, the imagery that, that, that Elihu brings to kind of talk about God's work are related to how God is over the, the weather and the storms and the, and the clouds. And here's a good example of this. And he says, For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Now this imagery of rain is important. Because while it doesn't mean this much to us, to the ancients, rain was literally the source of life. It, it is what grew the crops, and the crops fed the, the animals. So if the rains don't come, they perish, they die. And so the rains are important, right? And, he, and he's using this analogy, and I think he's using this weather imagery as a, as a metaphor, because the waters that bring life, um, guess what has to come to bring the waters of the rain? Storms. The rains only come when the storms come. So I think, I think Elihu's using this whole thing as a metaphor. Job, you're in a storm, but there's rains. And interestingly enough, when God, God shows up, um, in a minute we're going to see this, he speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, out of the storm. 
But, but Elihu says this, right? The waters which bring life and the storms bring the rain. And in verse 37, 13, he says, whether, and he's talking about God, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. That word love there in Hebrew is hesed, which is God's covenant faithfulness. Now, remember I pointed out that Job's the only person, aside from the narrator, that keeps referring to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. And so here, Elihu draws this notion of hesed, God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love to his people. And he brings it forward, and he says, whether for correction or for his land or for love, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness to his people, he causes this to happen. And then we see God showing up after Elihu, speaking to Job, verse uh, 1 through 3, 38. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of the storm, and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And um, I, th- I think it's interesting that, that God responds kind of in kind. He, 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 he doesn't really show up in a comforting way, right? Job's angry at God. He's been kind of blunt, curtain, and even, you might say, harsh towards God, and, jo- and God shows up and kind of answers him in kind. Shows up and rebukes him. We're not going to get into the details of it, but he rebukes Job along two lines. And the first one is basically uh, asking Job, hey, uh, where were you when I made everything, Job? Where were you when I did this, and when I did this, and when I did this, and do you understand how these things work? And the obvious answer is what? No, I wasn't there, I don't know. And then the second line is, is basically telling Job that since he's so wise, why doesn't Job cast down the wicked and, and bring justice upon the earth? To which Job responds, well, you know, I can't, obviously. And so after both of those discourses, we, we see Job's response. We'll see him here. It says the first time, right? And then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And after the second rebuke, Job responds, and it says, And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, what's interesting is God finally shows up, and he actually never answers Job's question. He, he doesn't even key Job into what we know has happened at, in, the, in the prologue. The whole dialogue between God and, and you know, Satan and all that. He, Job's still clueless to any of this. He has no idea. God doesn't answer anything with respect to the questions Job's answer, asking. But what I find interesting is that you still find Job being at peace and content. And the question is why? Because he got God. God showed up. See, Job was wrestling with God, and it didn't lead him to an answer, but it led to an encounter. In Job's wrestling, he wanted an answer, and instead he got an encounter. He came face to face with God. And this is why Job is at peace. This is why Job is at rest. This is why when God shows up, Job is stilled. And this is why in Job we see an example of faith wrestling with God. And in, in Job, Job speaks to God as one who is in relationship with God. This is why he calls him Yahweh. And this is why Job is so angry. This is why we see Job with solid theology. He knows that God is just and that God is sovereign. 
And, and that's part of why he is, that even contributes to why Job is so angry, because he can't make sense of who he knows God to be with what he's experiencing in his life. But in the midst of this, we see Job relating to God in, in what I would call raw honesty, right? The friends kind of have this detached, transactional, somewhat distanced way of thinking about God. Job's not like that. Now, does everything that Job, uh, is everything that Job says or says during uh, the course of his kind of venting, is it objectively right and true? Well, no. But is everything that Job says and gives voice to honest and indicative of someone who has a relationship with God and is wrestling through the implications of that in the midst of actual life? The answer is yes. He's wrestling with God. And, and this is why I think God counts Job as the one who speaks rightly of him and not the three friends. Job um, bore his soul in complaint before his friends and before God, and he did it without pretense, without hypocrisy, without trying to fake it. He just gave voice to what was happening, what he was thinking and what he was feeling. But we also see Job being warned by Elihu, hey, don't allow the bitterness to set in. Don't be like the godless in heart. There's something in the midst of this that God wants to do to draw you out of distress and into something that maybe you don't even fully understand. And so my question in going through all of this is to ask you, where are you at this morning? Where are you at? Because here, here's the deal. If you haven't had to wrestle with God over the reality of suffering or disappointment or hardship or God doing something in your life that you don't like understand and can't make sense of, then that day is coming. So far, uh, death has a pretty good track record. Everyone who's born will what? Die. So even if things are going well right now, a day is coming where all that you think you have will be stripped of you. It may not happen in a single day, but it's coming. And this is why um, in his book, on, on uh, Job, Peter Kreeft, Kreeft, I always mess up his last name, says this. He says, Job is no exception, but the rule. The trouble God had to bring him through is ours too, in one way or another. Not all of us lose our children, our health, our possessions, and our confidence in one day, but all of us must learn to lose everything but God. For all of us will die, and you cannot take anything with you but God. So can you say like Job, though he slay me, my hope is in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Like, do you wrestle with the Lord, or have you settled for some kind of indifferent distance between you and God? Because here's the deal, and I want, please, if you hear anything, hear this. Stoic indifference is not maturity in Christ. Sometimes we stuff it. And we say all the right things because we think that's what we're supposed to do. And our sense of connection to our Lord grows distant and faint and empty. And we don't know how we ended up there, but eventually we find ourselves just going through the motions. Because we wanted to do the right thing. Do you wrestle with your Lord? Do you give voice to the grief and the complaint do you fight with God? Can you say with Job, though he slay me, my hope is in him, yet I'm going to argue my ways to his faith. Do you cast yourself upon God? Do you throw yourself at him? 
Or do you just fake it? Because you think that's what you're supposed to do. There's no way to know where you're at this morning, but I'm willing to bet that some of you have settled rather than wrestled with God. And your hiding is not maturity, it's hypocrisy. And I would implore you to stop hiding. Put the facade down. Get honest with yourself, with some friends, and with God himself, and take God to task. Is it a fight you're going to win? No! God, no! It's like a mouse throwing himself at a lion, right? But though he slay me, my hope is in him. Wrestle with your Lord. Don't settle for tepid, emotionless indifference because you think somehow that's what spiritual maturity looks like. None of the friends spoke rightly about God, but Job did. Because Job spoke honestly from the condition of his heart, and that's faith working itself out in the midst of actual life. Because here's the thing. Those who are angry and yelling at God are closer to God than those who are indifferent. Because if you're yelling at him, you're still facing him. And if you're facing him, you just might show up like you did for Job. But what's more is we should have even more boldness than Job to lay hold of the Lord and to wrestle with him. Because we know, we know the greatness of the ransom. We know the breadth and width and depth of God's mercy. And we'll have the same complaints. We'll look at the world and we'll say, there's all this wickedness and injustice and I'm not sure God's doing his job. And we got to listen to Elihu. Don't, don't allow your, stop being so focused on justice for the wicked. Because we know the greatness of God's mercy and we're counted among them and there's mercy for us. And we know that the Lord came and suffered and died for our sins so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters, so that the wicked might be made family with God. And he knows our frailty and he sympathizes with us. He doesn't stand uh, in indifference to us. And, and Job, and this is what's interesting, Job thought God might kill him. Though he slay me, my hope is in him. But we know that God gave his life for us so that we might have life and we could be joined to him as his children. And, and so we should have far more boldness than Job. Don't settle. Wrestle with your Lord. Wrestle and fight with the Lord of storms because in the rains that come through those storms, God will draw you ever nearer to a true and deeper understanding of what it means to know him and to walk with him and to live with him. In a moment here, Pastor Jeff and the elders are going to come forward and you have an opportunity to respond uh, with communion where we remember Christ dying and rising again for our sins. I would ask you this morning, have you, should you be, wrestling with the Lord? Or are you settling in for a comfortable indifference? Because it's easier than throwing yourself at the lion. Because you're just a mouse. It's not a fight you're going to win, but it's a fight worth having. Because when you look at Job, he didn't get an answer, but he got God. And it's when we wrestle with God that we get God. And that's what we all want. That's what we all need. And so brothers and sisters, wrestle with the Lord of storms.
Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would enliven in our hearts, Lord, that you would bring us in humility to come before you. Lord, may we wrestle with you. May we ask the hard questions. May we fight the fight of faith. May we not settle for indifference or distance between us and you. And Lord, may we with Job cry out, though you slay me, my hope is in you. But Lord, we know, we know better than Job that you died for us, that you sympathize with us in our weakness. And so we can draw near to you with honesty and transparency. We don't have to fake it. We don't have to put on a mask. But we can give, give voice to the complaints of our heart. We can give honest expression to the joys of this life as well as the trials. And in the midst of that, we can draw near to you in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray.